Well, good morning. Um, good to see all of you guys uh, again. And if you're visiting for the first time, just want to extend a warm welcome. So glad you could join us uh, today. Um, we'll pray that gets better. Um, but yeah, just want to extend a warm welcome to you. Uh, good to be able to worship uh, together with you this morning. Uh, can I invite us to bow together in a word of prayer before we study his word? Jesus, thank you so much for this day, and Lord, being that it is uh, July 4th, God, we're thankful for the privileges and freedoms we enjoy in this country to be able to gather like this, as even we prayed about one of our global partners serving overseas in places and regions where this kind of freedom is not afforded. It's not something we want to take for granted. So we, again, thank you for the freedoms that are ours here. Lord, I pray for our church and churches across this country today that you would help us to strike a healthy balance between, as you call us to in your word, praying for our country, working for its good, loving our neighbors well, while at the same time not idolizing our country. And being reminded that we have a far better country waiting for us. An eternal city that you have prepared for us. And that is where our ultimate citizenship lies. And in fact, it's when we keep that order right and that priority right that as we fix our eyes on our ultimate home with you through Christ, that's how we actually become the very best possible citizens of our earthly, citizen, our earthly cities and earthly nations. So continue to help us, God, even this morning, that you would, through your word and truth, shape us more and more into the culture of the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom, so that as we are shaped more and more as kingdom citizens, that we would again be the very best citizens here in Philadelphia that we can be for our neighbor's good, for the flourishing of this city in every way unto your glory we pray in jesus name amen all right this is much better so if you've been with us we've been studying uh the book of exodus and then we've just transitioned after chapter 19 last week we transitioned into a study a focus study on the ten commandments uh interestingly the ten commandments as they're referred to in your English Bible, are not called the Ten Commandments in the original language. They're not referred to that way in the original Hebrew. In the Hebrew, they're referred to as, rather, the Ten Words. You can read about that in Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 4, 10, 4. You'll see this little subscript, and that's where every time it says commandments, it's actually words. And so this is why the Ten Commandments are sometimes referred to as the Decalogue, which comes from the Greek, deca meaning ten, and log meaning word, ten words. And so though brief, it's just ten commandments or word, the ten words, though brief, are bursting with truth, with meaning, and with a myriad of applications. As we continue to study in our series, you're going to see that each commandment actually condemns a particular vice, but it simultaneously commends a particular virtue. 
In other words, for example, it's not enough to just not murder. We should value and preserve life from the womb to the tomb. Each command addresses not only one particular sin, but a whole category of sins in kind. Last week, we saw how the commands of God serve as a map showing us the way that humanity was meant to live, designed to live by God. The law serves as a muzzle to restrain evil, and the law also serves as a mirror in that our consistent failure to obey these very commands, our failure to both do what is right externally, but also our failure to desire what is right internally, our failure clearly revealed is meant to show us that we're far more sinful than we realize in order that we would be driven into the arms of the one and only Savior, Jesus, through whom when you put your trust in him, you will be far more loved than you could ever dare hope for. So again, though brief, these Ten Commandments are bursting with truth, meaning, and a myriad of applications. So having studied the first commandment last week, we're now going to turn to the second commandment and I'd like to study it under these three headings. What is prohibited? Why the prohibition? And then third, images redeemed. All right, so one more time. What is prohibited? Why the prohibition? And then images redeemed. So first of all, what is prohibited? As we established last week, the first commandment teaches us that there is only one true God. And because there's only one true God, he alone is worthy of our ultimate love, trust, and devotion. Trying to serve God and serve something else is not truly serving him at all. Just as a married person trying to love their spouse and another lover is not truly love. As Jesus says, you can't serve both God and money. You will hate the one and love the other. Therefore, We must continually guard against setting up competition in our hearts, as our brother just prayed. God replacements, idols, which oftentimes are actually good things. These can be good gifts of God, like family, career, sex. Good gifts meant to be enjoyed, but the the problem is so often we make these good gifts ultimate things. We make them our highest love our greatest hope, our deepest source of satisfaction and meaning. And in so doing, not only are we cheating God, but we're cheating ourselves because these idols can never quite deliver what you were designed to find in the Lord alone. So the prohibition, you shall have no other gods, the prohibition is simultaneously an invitation to true life that you might have life and have it to the full. Well, the second commandment is actually expanding on the first. And so whereas the focus of the first commandment is about who we worship, the focus of the second commandment is how we should worship him. The first is about who. The second is about how we are to worship him. And so again, the command reads, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. You see, the common practice of the surrounding nations, including the nation that the Israelites were just leaving, Egypt, and the nations 
that they were heading to, the land of Canaan, the common practice was the worship of many gods, polytheism versus monotheism, and not only the worship of many gods, in the worship of these various gods, what they would do is they would make various physical representations of them, an image, a statue, a.k.a. an idol. And, and then they would bow down to these statues and use them in and for worship. So God is certainly prohibiting the worship of other gods and bowing down to idols that represent those gods. But in the second commandment, God is also prohibiting Israel, not just from the worship of other gods, but from worshiping him in the same way as the other nations. The same way, using images, idols in worship. I appreciate how Kevin DeYoung in his book on the Ten Commandments summarizes it very clearly and briefly for us, the essence of this command, and I like how he puts it. What God prohibits is infusing any object with spiritual efficacy as if man-made artifacts can bring us closer to God, represent God, or establish communion with God. Now, I trust that this raises a lot of questions in our minds in terms of specifics and practical applications, and I'm going to do my best to address those things under our next point. Why the prohibition? Why the prohibition? So there's three particular problems, three particular problems I want to highlight with the, concerning the use of images, sculptures, or icons, and they all start with C, right? The three C's, three particular problems. The first problem is that of trying to contain God. Trying to contain God. I remember the first time I saw the Grand Canyon in person. It literally took my breath away. And I specifically remember taking pictures and thinking to myself, man, there's no way that pictures can do justice to the scale of this place, the dimensions, the depth, the colors. And this was, mind you, this was in the early 2000s when digital cameras were not nearly as good as they are now. It was like three megapixels and we'd get excited. It's like up to 12 be like three megapixels, which now looking back, it's basically a shade better than drawing it by hand. And so I, in light of that, I just remember feeling this frustration like, man, I'm going to bring these pictures home, but it's not going to really matter because the pictures are never going to do justice and never going to be able to reproduce the magnitude and grandeur of this place. Likewise, any attempt to depict God would fall short of capturing his magnitude, his grandeur. It would, in fact, have a diminishing effect. Trying to depict him in some form is only going to be a less-than version, a less-than version of who he really is and what he is really like. It's like when a toddler, I, I have four kids, and my youngest, Lily's two now, and sometimes she'll try to draw a picture of me, and it's like a, square at best with some lines coming off and she daddy that's you and it's cute and all but it doesn't come close to capturing or containing the essence of who I am <laughs> and that's okay she's two 
Now, it made complete sense. It made complete sense for Israel in this time at this moment in Sinai to not depict God who was invisible and unseen. It completely made sense that they should not try to capture the essence of the creator using something in creation like the gods of the nations, right? Their gods would often just be animals like, you know, the Egyptian gods. A lot of them have like the head of an animal and the body of a human. So it made complete sense when Israel heard this. Of course, the invisible, unseen God, of course we should try not to to represent him or picture him somehow. It would all fall short. But what about when God came in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ? Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is a God-sanctioned, God-approved, God-delighted-in image. So then the question is, is it okay to therefore have images of Jesus? To make images of Jesus? Cough, cough. Is it okay? And I'll say on this subject, there, is, there are differing views amongst Christians committed to the scriptures, there are different views. And even within our church's particular theological tradition, we're a Presbyterian and Reformed congregation. And even within the Reformed community, there's differences in opinion on this. Some will say, and some believe the proper application of the second commandment is to totally avoid making any images of Jesus ever. Whether it be paintings, nativity scenes, Mm-mm. Even the Jesus Storybook Bible, many of us read our children. And there's reason. Some of the thinking behind it is that because Jesus was fully human and still fully God, any depiction of him would fail to depict the divine part of him and therefore be less than the real Jesus and who he was. In addition to that, We don't know exactly what he looked like. Nobody knows exactly what he looked like, so any attempt to draw him would actually be false. Others, and so that's one view, and I totally get the warrant for it. I think it's a strong argument. Others will say the second commandment doesn't necessarily teach that God can't, particularly Jesus, can't ever be pictured at all that images of him can never be made. And the thought behind it being, God clearly became picturable in Jesus. Colossians 1.19 says, The fullness of God dwelled in him, meaning both humanity and divinity, so there is no problem of an either-or. Furthermore, pictures depicting his humanity can be of great value and to de-emphasize the reality of his body, that he was actually really a human being and only stress his unseenness is to tend towards a heresy called docetism, which denied the actual body of Jesus. Finally, though we do not know exactly what he looked like, We certainly do know some things, and we know them truly and accurately. He was a Middle Eastern male. 
certainly not the northern European-looking man with perfectly conditioned and shampooed hair, as he's often depicted. Therefore, depicting Jesus in children's material, even art, would be okay as long as, very important, as long as the artist creating that image, whether it's the author, uh, artist of the Jesus Storybook Bible, isn't creating or claiming this is exactly what Jesus looked like. And we know from the Jesus Storybook Bible that's not what they're trying to do. Because that would be a lie. Here's exactly what he looked like with that intent and purpose, because nobody knows that. And as long as, and here's where there's full agreement, whatever the view, whatever side you're on, here's where there's full agreement. Images or figures should never be used for the purposes of worship. Meaning, to be clear here, it would be problematic if we began to pray to an image or a statue of Jesus, imagining as if you're praying to Jesus while clutching that statue. The face, as you're praying, to picture the face of Jesus depicted at a, in a painting, as it's depicted in a painting, perhaps as it's de- uh, depicted in a movie. So there you are praying to Jesus, and you have Jim Caviezel in mind, Passion of the Christ, and you're like, yes, Jesus, and you're praying to him with Jim's face in mind. That would be problematic because that's not Jesus. That's Jim Caviezel. So I'm going to pre- say, share this at this morning, probably not at Center City because you're all in this building. In case you're wondering, we inherited this building. If we could have built it from scratch, I think we would have done without all the imagery, though it's aesthetically beautiful, just so as to prevent anyone from feeling tempted to try and do that, like, oh, I'm picturing Jesus and there he is and that's what he looks like, just so to prevent such a thing from happening. And perhaps a day will come... <laughs> Uh, where we will be able to um, repurpose, um, reposition some things, relocate some things. But the main idea where both sides completely agree is to try to incorporate these things into the use of our very worship. To venerate any object as if the object itself held some kind of power or ability, like you're touching the picture, and it's like, yes, God's power is flowing, right? As if the object itself held some kind of power or ability to mediate your relationship with God, serve as a channel or conduit of blessing, no. Because there's only one true mediator, and his name is Jesus. And this touches on the second problem regarding images, sculptures, or icons. Trying to control God. 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 through 11 describes how Israel suffers this bad defeat against the Philistines. So what do they do? They go and grab the Ark of the Covenant as if they could control or access God's power. It's like, we lost, but if we grab the Ark, then we'll win, wielding it as if it's some kind of rabbit's foot, bringing them good luck. Jeremiah chapter 7, 1 to 15 describes how the Israelites were living in utter disobedience. But they acted as if, simply by walking into the temple building, that all of the sudden, just by being in the building, it would be some automatic conduit of blessing. You and I, people today, we can do the same thing with Bibles, crosses, yes, even church buildings. As if having these things in our houses or pockets or on our walls or in our glove compartment 
ensures God's blessing and presence. It's akin to the ancient practice we read about in Scripture where people had household gods. You read about different accounts where people would grab their household gods. They believed that having these figurines of the gods ensured the presence, blessing, and protection of that particular god. And yes, some people treat crosses that way to assign a kind of spiritual efficacy or power to created thing rather than the creator is not only an offense to God in and of itself, but also the attitude or belief behind it is offensive because it is a form of seeking to control God. As if being in possession of this item obligates God to work on your behalf. Look, I'm holding it. Now you got to bless me. Now you got to protect me. A third problem in danger is seeking to conform God, to conform God into something he's not. Exodus 32 describes how Moses was taking a long time on Mount Sinai, and the people of God grew impatient, and they told Aaron, make us some gods that we can worship. I mean, I just, I can't imagine what Moses thought when he comes down and he sees them He's like, sorry, I took a long time, guys. It's not like I was doing anything important. I was just talking to God. And yet, here, he took a little long, and then they build this golden calf. Here's the thing about the golden calf. It was not meant to be some new god. They weren't actually worshiping Baal when they made the golden calf. Aaron said this, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He's saying this is actually Yahweh and what he's like. Here are the two glaring issues here. For one, as we stated earlier, not only is it important who we worship, the true and living God, but how we worship matters. God's the one that regulates how we should worship. Theologically, it's called the regulative principle. What's acceptable in worship should be determined not by us and our ideas, but by God. He says, don't incorporate idols into your worship. But there are things we also should do according to God. Praying, singing, preaching of the word, sacraments. It's not that some guy long ago thought this up. Hey, let's think of this thing called church and just What kinds of things will we do in this thing called church? And they just made it. These things we do are directly commanded in the word of God. It's his regulations. Second glaring issue is that we should worship God and respond to God according to his self-revelation. So his regulations matter, but his revelation matters. Meaning God was not a golden calf. That's what they thought up. That's what they pictured in their own heads. And in other words, they were conforming God to their own ideas and own impressions rather than worshiping God and relating to God for who he actually is and what he's actually like and what he has revealed himself to be. That is not just an ancient problem. This happens all the time today. When you find yourself using this phrase, well, I'd like to think that God is like dot, dot, dot. I know people say this, but I like to think what God is really like is dot, dot, dot. 
then you know you're on the path to making God conform to fit your ideas of who he is. And in so doing, rather than worshiping and relating to the true and living God, you're just worshiping or relating to a God of your own making who just reflects your values, your priorities, your thoughts. In other words, it's, it's an idol that just looks like you. We want a God of love, but not a God of wrath. A God who's always there for us and never requires anything difficult of me. A God who loves me and people like me, but not those people. A God who loves our country more than those countries, and the list goes on and on. Can you see the insult and the offense in this? I mean, you and I don't like when we're misrepresented. Nobody likes that. When someone assumes things about you that are not accurate or true, when someone characterizes you in a particular way that's not accurate or true, that's offensive. How much more so to the living God? Or can you imagine a married woman or a married man carrying a picture of their spouse around And one day the spouse is like, oh, that's so sweet. You carry a picture of me. And and they just find their spouse looking at the picture and they walk up and they're like, wait a minute, that's not me. And it's a picture of somebody else. And if the spouse replies, I know, but that's what I wish you looked like. Death. (laughs) How much more, how much deeper the offense for the true and living God who is of infinite worth. And for us to say, I don't really like how you look. I'd rather, this is how I'd like you to look. I wish you looked like this. And so God describes his feelings towards idolatry and its consequences in verses 5 and 6. For I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That's some really heavy stuff. What's going on? First of all, when we hear the word jealousy, immediately we think negative, and we usually, our minds go right to envy. Envy. Envy is a desire for what is not your own doesn't belong to you, yet you want it. That's envy. Jealousy is actually focused on what is rightfully yours. And therefore, there's actually a fundamental goodness about it. As one commentator writes, godly jealousy is not the insecure, insane, and possessive human jealousy we often interpret this word to mean. Rather, It is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love, like a mother's jealous protection of her children. A father jealous, a father's jealously, a father jealously guarding his home. You see, a husband who genuinely loves his wife, or a wife who genuinely loves her husband, should rightfully feel jealousy towards a competing romance. Because the love of your spouse is rightfully yours. It rightfully belongs to you. It would be actually wrong for them to be like, ah, whatever. 
fine by me. There's something deeply wrong with that. God rightfully deserves our loyalty, rightfully deserves our love, and he has every right to be jealous when we direct our hearts and worship someone or something else, another version of him. But then he goes on to describe how he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. What is up with that? Because what it sounds like is because dad messed up, three, even four generations later, great-great-grandkids are going to be punished because of what dad did. And this is where it's important to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Ezekiel chapter 18 clearly describes, you can look it up, Ezekiel 18 clearly describes how an innocent son will not be punished for the evil of their father. That would be unjust. But a very real dynamic exists, and here's how we understand this. A very real dynamic exists where if the parents, we'll just say father because that's what the verse says, if the father is living in rebellion against the Lord, the children growing up in such an environment will imbibe that culture. It's inevitable. Happens in all our homes. One thing I've learned as a parent, four kids in, is I am flabbergasted about how when I was growing up, I'm never going to be like my dad. And there's so many times we'll be at dinner and my dad will do something and my wife's with me and she'll be like, you're just like your dad. (laughs) We imbibe it. It's hard to escape. Not that it's inescapable, but so often, not all the time, 100% of the time, but many times, Whatever the parents are walking in, the children will walk in because they walk in the footsteps of their parents. That's what they imbibe. There's many studies about why church kids fall away. And you know, the, it's a very simple difference between the ones that do and the ones that don't. The ones that don't are the ones who saw their parents live it out in the home all the time. The culture of the home. The ones that did were the ones that were raised in a merely culturally Christian home where you just kind of go to church, but nothing else has ever lived out. And therefore, why will the children share in the father's punishment? Because the idea is that they share in the father's punishment because they too share in the father's sin. They do the things he did. They learned it from him. The passage says, of those who hate me, further clarifying, this is not an innocent, God-loving child getting cursed because of dad's sin generations ago. It says, of those who hate me, the children hate God as the father hated God. And hate isn't describing only aggressive atheists. I hate you, God. To serve another God or some other version of God is basically saying, I don't want you, God. I wish you were gone. And if you treated any other human being that way, I don't want you and I wish you were gone. I wish you didn't exist. I think it would be fair to call that hate. It would be an appropriate term. 
the passage doesn't end there. He says, showing steadfast love to thousands. Three to four generations of those who hate me, there will be consequence. Thousands. Showing steadfast love to thousands of generations. Doesn't mean it's exactly, it's going to stop at a thousand. The thousand and first generation is like, ah, great. But what it's conveying is this. It's meant to convey the heart of God that delights, delights in showing mercy and compassion more than he delights in condemnation. As he says in Ezekiel 33, 11, God tells the prophet Ezekiel, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? The call to worship him only in the ways that he's regulated and according to his self-revelation is for our good and for the good of the generations that will follow you. Finally, images redeemed. As we stated earlier, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. But there is another image that God has sanctioned. Another image that God delights in looking at. It's us. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. It means we were created to reflect God, just as children reflect their parents. Everyone can pick my son Evan out of a lineup, because it looks like we literally cloned him. Someone just sent me a picture, um, a friend, I grew up together, of me when I was Evan's age, and I did like the test, and I was like, look, Lily, who is this? She's like, Evan. There it is. My parents saw the picture, and they're just like, Still, their mind is blown by how much he looks exactly like me. Children reflect the parents. We were meant to reflect him. We were meant to reflect God in who we are, meaning our rationality, the ability to reason, plan, create in our morality, to reflect his love, righteousness, justice. We reflect him as social beings for God himself exists within a loving community of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We too, therefore, made in his image, are created to pursue and enjoy loving community. Our relationships reflecting the unity and diversity of the Godhead. We're, re we're meant to reflect God in what we do. To reflect God's rule, meaning working to create, care for and cultivate creation in a way that extends God's blessing and peace, what we call shalom. Yet because of our rejection of God, the image of God, though it remains, every human being is made in the image of God, believer or not, but that image is now deeply distorted. It's like looking at yourself in a shattered mirror or in a carnival mirror. I don't know how this started. I think it started with the boys, but Lily 
always comes to me and says, Daddy, Snapchat, <laughs> Snapchat. And we do the face filter. And she loves it. There's like a cat on your head, and we get all these laughs. But there's certain ones that will really distort your face. And she gets terrified. <laughs> and she turns her face away, and some of them just look repulsive. We'll do the face swap where it's like my face on her body, and it's just, ah. And she will literally be in tears. She's like, Daddy, change, change. And I'll say, yes, Lily, this is a good object lesson. The Imago Dei, the image of God, has been distorted. And, no, I don't. She's two years old. I do not do. But that's what it's like. We've become deeply distorted. We use our reason not to reflect God's glory, but our own. Socially, we act like animals many times in our relationships. It's either fight or flight. It's either attack or it's hide in shame and fear. We remain or are prone to tribalism, division. When we take rule of something, we become domineering, serving our own purposes, seeking our own glory. But because of the heart of God... Because of the heart of God, which cries out, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die? And it's because of that heart that God had looked upon humanity. And Jesus turned to his father, and he said, I will go. I will die so that they might live. He was shattered so that the image of God would be restored in those who trust in him. It says in Ephesians 4.24, For all those who believe in him, we are being made new, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He is at work in you that you might grow more and more to reflect the true beauty of God. True beauty. Not manufactured Snapchat filters and Instagram filters. True beauty. Spirit-wrought beauty. And so in closing, brothers and sisters, can I encourage you, even this day, today, as we close our time, as we turn to the Lord in prayer, pray to the Lord, Jesus, as you're at work in me, help me to reflect you, to image you more and more in all that I do, in who I am, in how I relate to people, in all that I do, in my work, in all things. So why don't we do that? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I'll just give you a moment to submit your heart before the Lord, thanking him that he delighted to show you mercy and compassion, to lay down his life upon the cross that you might live. And because he has done this by faith in him, he is remaking and reshaping. So let's come before him this day and say, Lord, remake me in every way, more and more into your image. Perhaps you can think of particular areas right now 
where you know you're not imaging him well. Parents, are you reflecting the fatherly heart of God? The motherly heart of God. Both are described in the scriptures. As you go about your work, do you approach your work with a heart that reflects, that images who our God is and what he's like? Seeking to spread blessing, peace, shalom. In your relationships, have you settled for fracture? Are you fighting or are you in flight? Or are you pursuing reconciliation, loving community, unity and diversity with those who are different than you? Invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts. And if you are here today visiting and you are not a believer, if you have any questions, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Or you can shoot uh, an email uh, to the office, grab a hold of any one of the, the, the pastors or staff. We'd love to chat with you. But again, as we talked about last week, I hope you would understand you were designed, you were made. You were made. You were not accidentally formed. You were made, designed to know God and to be known by him. And his desire for you is that you would have life and have it to the full. And in order to do that, he laid down his life. And all that he asks is that you would receive this gift that he has purchased for you. And spend some time going to him. Holy God, there's nobody like you. Your greatness, infinite worth, cannot fully be contained. We humble ourselves and, Lord, we repent of the ways in which we have tried to control you, conform you to our ideas dismissed you it is your kindness that leads us to repentance because we hear your heart's cry that called out to us turn turn that you might live why would you die and you willingly died in our place taking the death and punishment we deserved that indeed we might live as our hearts are filled with gratitude and love we want to image you as we were created to in every way possible. So empower us, even this day, to those we meet, to everything that we do. Help us to image you, to reflect you. We know we won't be perfect in it. Christ purchased that for us. But we know that change is real by the power of your spirit who's mending the shattered mirror, taking away the distortions, so that one day, until that day, where we actually see you face to face and we won't have to imagine and we will be a perfect reflection of you right back. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's rise and close in this song.